Welcome to Story of a Storyteller. I'm your host, Connor Braden. This is the show where I found out all about the ins and outs of the lives of storytellers of all kinds. You can find my free novella, The Stolen Dagger, episode show notes, links to all sorts of amazing books, and more at connorbraden.com slash podcast. Enjoy! Hello, story lovers, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the podcast. My guest today is Keith A. Pearson, author of The 86 Fix, the Clement series, and his new book that's coming out very soon, Waiting in the Sky. Keith and I talk about his childhood, where, to use his words, not mine, he grew up piss poor. He tells me of the difficulties his mother had in particular when they lost his older sister as a baby, before he was born, and we discuss the effect that that had on him and his family as he grew up. We also talk about his books, of course, and how he grew from just one book in 2016 to a full-time author with dozens of books in just five years. Keith's first book was actually written as part of a dare, and damn it, I wish someone would dare me to write a book like that so that I could actually do this full-time. <laughs> I learned a lot from talking to Keith, and I hope you do too. In case you skipped ahead of the intro, my own book, The Longest Night, is two years old. Yay! Uh, So to celebrate, the book is free to download from all Amazon stores from today, Monday the 9th of August 2021, for any of you people next year listening to this, uh, until Thursday the 12th. So be sure to check that out. If you'd like to be entered into a raffle for a signed paperback of my book, just email or tweet or Instagram um, some way. Show me a screenshot proving you've already downloaded or bought the book and you'll be entered in the raffle. And downloading the free book counts as part of it, so check that out. Writing-wise, I'm afraid I've taken a huge dive in terms of productivity. Some very personal and messed up stuff got in the way of my creativity and I'm still trying to claw my head back into the creative space that I was in. So um, I'll get to it soon, though, and I just have to hope I can get my book in ship shape in time. Um, the likelihood of this book being released by the end of the year is getting smaller and smaller, but that's okay because I know I'll get it out someday. Um, and then finally, in just small personal news, I'm getting my second um, Pfizer vaccine dose on, on the day this episode releases, on Monday the 9th. So I'm delighted. And then a week after that, I'll be considered fully vaccinated which means i'll be able to start seeing friends in person again and we'll be able to have people in our home safely as my boyfriend has been fully vaccinated a long time now um obviously i'm not an idiot i'll still i'm fully vaccinated i am not immune um i have to still wear a mask in public places and keep up hand hygiene but it's nice to have that kind of minor constant underlying fear we've all dealt with this last 18 months of covid it's nice that that's gone Enough about me and vaccines and word counts. Let's listen to Keith A. Pearson. Hello and welcome to the show, Keith. How are you getting on? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. It's uh, great to have you on. And um, especially because when I was looking at your your website has to, out of all, this is, this is going on the record, out of all the people I've had on the show, your about page has been the best for in terms of <laughs> and coming up with questions. <laughs> uh, other than that, I'm a complete narcissist. It's, I, I, well, <laughs> <laughs> that means it, it works either way, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so Keith, I'd like to get started with just, you're one of four boys uh, in your family. So just what was that like? Because I'm sure, like, there's only just me and my brother um and we were always killing each other so i can imagine with four (laughs) it would have been a fairly chaotic household was it you'd think so i mean yes it was definitely a chaotic household but uh, my two elder brothers are sort of eight and nine years older than me um so there's a a fair age gap there and my younger brother who's who's three years younger i mean he he's has uh, learning difficulties or had had quite severe learning difficulties as a child so I was sort of stuck in the middle there. Um, and as, as you, you would think that being one of four siblings was, you know, we were quite tight. But the, the reality was that we weren't, I, I wouldn't say we were particularly close as siblings, no. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realise there's that much of a gap. That's eight, nine years there. Yeah. Gap, especially with no siblings in between. Well, there was a, the, the whole reason I'm, I exist is my, my two brothers came along 
and then uh, my parents had a daughter, uh, Jackie, who was two years old, three years older than me. Uh, they lost her when she was a couple of weeks old, I think. Oh, so I was the only one who was sort of planned. And as my dad reminds me on a weekly basis, I was spoiled. Um, and then my brother, young brother came along afterwards. So it was a bit of a, the reason why the gap was there was because, um, you know, because of uh, Jackie's um, sad passing. Yeah, that's, that's uh, that must have been very difficult. And it was that, did you... So we're already gone way off track, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, did you, growing up, uh, at what point were you told about um, the uh, your? Oldest? I don't think it, I became conscious of it until probably secondary school age. Um, I, I don't know why. I mean, I felt that there was something different in the way that perhaps my mum treated me, mm. um, and indeed my dad. I think my dad was. Um, I don't think we had the greatest relationship. Um, whereas my mum, I think, I, I guess if you've lost a child, then the next one that comes along, you are going to focus all of your, your attention on. And I guess it's part of the grieving process that you're going to throw, you know, huge amounts of love at that, that child. And I guess I was the, the beneficiary, if you like. Um, but yeah, you don't think about it. And then until, until you have kids of your own, and then I think it hits you, I mean, how that must feel. Um, and, uh, I, you know, we never really talked about it as a family. Um, but I think, you know, later on down the line, I took my mum over to Jackie's grave. And um, it, that, was, that was a moment. Yeah, I can imagine. Especially because it is something that, I mean, I, I, like I... I I haven't experienced it and, and most the vast majority of people never do but it is said very often that the loss of a child is the like hardest most difficult thing. I can't imagine anything worse I mean I really can't I mean yeah thank god mine are uh, happy and healthy and now in their you know they're they're grown-ups well they're they're adults um and uh, <laughs> I like the distinction they're adults yeah. not necessarily grown up <laughs> um but you know I mean when they were tiny I mean they they uh, it, it's inc- this is not the most blokey thing to say, but you just you don't really uh, appreciate how much love you're capable of giving until you've had a child, um, and then it, it just completely blow, blows your world. Um, so to, to to lose a child, I just it just I cannot even think of the words to convey how horrible that must be. Yeah, um, you you remind me you reminded me there of something my own mother said to me. Um, of I was an adult anyway but it wasn't today or yesterday but she said she remembered when she was pregnant with my younger brother and I only have the one sibling um that she was worried because she said like she loved me so much like she loved her so much she was worried she wouldn't have enough love to give to the next kid but then when he was born she said it was like her heart grew to accommodate the extra love to give to him I can understand that I mean it's yeah I can definitely see that um, I mean, I, you know, I've only got two kids. I say only two is way more than enough for anyone. <laughs> um, and I, I can certainly see that. Um, but, you know, they are such, I mean, one's male, one's female. So there's an obvious difference. But, you know, they're, they're just such different characters. And you do, you know, you you love them in completely different ways, but but total. Um, it's, yeah, I, I didn't ever expect parenthood to sort of hit me uh, quite the way it did. <laughs> Um, and continues to hit me on a daily basis, <laughs> generally in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it 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 doesn't stop. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> um, so so then in that case, now uh, as a father, when you look back at your own childhood, I'm sure you've noticed a lot of kind of uh, things that you didn't notice when you were a kid. Like I know you said um, on that very comprehensive about me page um <laughs> you said that your parents were to quote you piss poor which yes. for anyone outside of the uk and ireland is very uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um do, do you think it was that your parents did a really good job of hiding um the, their financial situation from you or was it just that it's just you didn't know any better or why do you think you didn't notice that until you were an adult i think it's because so we lived on a huge council estate. I think it was 600 houses. 
Oh, that is huge. Yeah, so it's a big sprawling estate, and everyone around us was poor um, by the virtue of the fact that they ended up living on this shithole of a council estate. Um, nobody had much. I mean, and there, there were within the estate itself, there were levels of poverty. Um, you know, there were kids that you know really were uh, going around going to school in rags. Um, you did see kids that would you know survive on bread and beans and and um there it was there was proper poverty and i don't think we were impoverished um but certainly money was always uh, an issue in the house um to the point where as soon as my brothers were old enough uh you know 15 16 they were they were out of school and and, and into work and i think things eased up a bit then um but certainly growing up i was acutely conscious that acutely conscious that we didn't have a lot um and that really came into to focus when I left junior school and went to secondary school because up until that point most of the kids I went to school with in infant and junior were from the estate but secondary school's much bigger the intake was from a wider area so suddenly you're going to school with kids that you know are wearing expensive trainers and expensive jackets and uh, you know, back in the, this was the 80s, bear in mind, you know, they would have a Walkman or um, whatever was the tech of the time. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, sort of changed my outlook. And at that point, you start to realise what you haven't got, um, which is probably not a healthy way to look at things. But um, certainly I, I, I felt a little bit of jealousy, resentment at that age. Well, I think you do anyway at that age, don't you? Whether your family and your parents or whoever's caring for you has money to spend on things for you or not, like that age is a tricky time anyway because you're just constantly comparing yourself. Like no one is secure in who no, they are absolutely. at that age. Yeah, very much. You know, it was. A, it, I think it was the the first time. Um, you know, I, I started mixing with a different peer group, and I would go around to friends' houses, and it was just odd that. I think there's two ways you can look at it. If you grow up in that the environment I did, um, and then you see what <laughs> that old adage about how the how the other half live, yeah, there are ways that you can react to that. And I could have perhaps decided I wanted nice things, and I could have very easily fallen into to crime. Um, you know, lots of my my, my friends did uh, the ones on the estate. Um, or you decide that, you know, you want to take a different path in life. And I think even at the age of 13, 14, I decided that I didn't want the life my parents had. I wanted the life that my friend's parents had. I, you know, we didn't have a car and, you know, I'd go around to friends' houses and they would have two cars on the driveway, detached houses in, you know, leafy suburbia. It was a strange situation. This estate was on the outskirts of a quite an affluent commuter town in Surrey. So you can imagine the uh, the contrast between the life I had at home and the life my friends were living outside of the, the estate. It was, you know, very much chalk and cheese. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I think for me, I was fortunate that it sort of triggered some sort of aspirational um, gene somewhere deep down. And, and that's, when I sort of thought, yeah, okay, this this is the sort of life that I would much rather live than, you know, what is sometimes, um, what sometimes happens in, you know, the council estate culture where, you know, generation just follows generation and, you know, that's your lot. Um, but no, I definitely wanted to, I don't like to use the word escape, but I, don't, I definitely- change. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't want to spend the rest of my life uh, living on an estate. Yeah. And- just you said something there that I thought was interesting when you when you visited friends and peers houses and saw the difference um did you ever try to do anything as a kid to hide your situation and your family situation like did you kind of were you the kid who no one ever went to their house because you're always like no let's go to <laughs> such a one's house instead I don't think so I am um... I think perhaps when I was, I mean, I, I would say that I was a very solitary child and younger child. So from the ages of sort of, you know, when I first started going to, to infant school up to probably 11, 12, I, I was quite a solitary child. Um, so it didn't really bother me uh, or affect me in any way. 
uh, it was only when I went to secondary school. Um, I think there was one instance where it really hit me, where we had a, uh, a Christmas disco, and this was the first year of secondary school, so this was a big deal. Oh, huge. <laughs> yeah, and everyone was, you know, talking about it for weeks and, uh, you know, hormones flying, and this is the sort of age where you're starting to think about girls. And, and I remember trying to find something to wear, knowing that all of my friends from beyond the estate would be, you know, wearing whatever the latest fashion is. And I had, you know, I had nothing. And my mum could clearly see how upset I was because I've said, I'm not going. I don't, you know, I don't want to go. And she actually gave me one of my Christmas presents, which was a pair of, sort of generic jogging bottoms and a, and a pair of um, trainers that, you know, off-brand trainers. I mean, they were... They were cheap and they were nasty, but you know, I went to that disco feeling like a, you know, um, like I, I wouldn't say I fitted in, but I didn't feel so out of place. And and I think from that point on, you start to think you you do become more conscious of the fact that some people in life have and some people in life don't have so much. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a hard thing for a kid to realize, especially when. They really like you said the have the, the phrase I've often heard used was the haves and the have nots. Yeah, yeah. And especially for a child to realize, oh, I'm I'm one of the have nots. Yeah, it is it it can be. I don't I don't want to say demeaning, but it can be demoralizing. There's the word I'm thinking of. And yeah, I I think demeaning and uh, demeaning is is possibly the right word. Um, I don't think my parents really gave a lot of thought to it. Um. And they did everything they could. They gave us everything that they possibly, yeah, they worked tirelessly, tirelessly. And I wouldn't want anyone to go away thinking that I blame my parents. Um, at this, at that point in my life, yeah, you, I think there is, there, there is a, a slightly, um, the older you get, you do become, you know, the typical teenager, you start to look to blame everyone and anyone. Mm. Um I got into a few scrapes um, that I perhaps shouldn't have done. Um, and I think you just get a little bit angry because you feel that it's unfair uh, and you don't understand why. You just know that it it, it, it feels unfair. Um, so I think, yeah, somehow I managed just about to stay on the straight and narrow, but um, it, it was, yeah, it was a rocky path through, through secondary school, should we say. <laughs> Um, and then speaking of secondary school, I know you finished it up at GCSE level, which yeah. I'm only just realizing now, I don't know what GCSEs actually stand for. <laughs> Do you I think know? it's the uh, General Certificate of Secondary Education. And oh, okay. we were the first year to do it after the old O-levels. So oh, they were okay. phased out and then uh, GCSEs came in. So you were the first round? We the first GCSEs. year in 1988, it was. Oh, okay, right. Um, and then the A levels is after, and it's it's generally optional. But these days, it's kind of it's optional, it, but the vast majority would do it. As um, when you did your GCSEs, did most people do A levels, or was it a bit half and half? Or not in my um, peer group, they did. Well, <laughs> um, no, I mean I think some did. Some went on to to college and then on to to university. A few on the estate did, which um, you know, full credit to them um but most of the the kids in my peer group they wanted to do apprenticeships um I think by that point I was just hungry for 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 money I wanted to earn a living I wanted I wanted cash this was the the 80s you know um this was the time where you know we were sort of peak Thatcherism where um you know you could see the spoils of 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 hard work and um I had probably had a slightly entrepreneurial spirit by that point. And, and I, I, I think, you know, you referenced uh, a statement my dad made about, you know, college and university not being for people mm-hmm. like us. And I, I think only on re- reflecting, I didn't necessarily see that as a negative thing at the time. Um, I think maybe he was intimating that, you know, we would be more likely to, you know, duck and dive and, and make our way in life. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it's not something I've ever asked him, but I, I didn't take, it would have been easy to look at that and thought, oh, okay, that's a slightly discouraging thing to say. Yeah. But I, I didn't take it as such at the time. Yeah, that's that's interesting because that, that was what I was going to ask you, like how, how you how you reflect on that. And I, I'm sure like now as a parent, 
you'd never say to your kids, well, that's, that's not for you, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in, in a disparaging way. But it is something that could be interpreted that way, isn't it? Like, I mean, if... Uh, absolutely, yeah. And and I, I would, if, if he had encouraged me, I do wonder, would I have would I have gone on to college or, or even my mum for that matter? But it just wasn't the thing. And I don't think it was within them to push, push that way. Um, they just weren't, it, it was, it's a completely alien environment to them. Mm. Um, they were very hands-off parents. Um, even, at, you know, I think at the age of six, I would walk myself to school. Um, and that was just the dumb thing back then. Um, you would leave that, you would get home, you'd have a, you know, a glass of squash and a biscuit or whatever, and then you go out and play until you were called in for dinner at six o'clock or whatever it was. And it was it was just a completely different environment. So I just think the parenting back then was was very, very different. I mean, now, you know, a, a, a child, if they stray 10 feet from their parent in a supermarket, you know, there's chaos, panic. But back then it was just just completely different. We had absolute freedom in, in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if if I had said this to you before, but I'm actually a teacher in my day job. So, oh, are you? Okay. Uh, so I know exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> but the difference because, like, I remember the things because I grew up on a farm. So I remember like me okay. and my brother, especially during the summer holidays, we would literally just get up, leave the house, and start going walking up through our land and like play in the kind of there was a forestry up one end, and then there was a there was a kind of an old quarry the other end and we'd play there until it started <laughs> to get very dark. similar yeah and then we'd walk back but you know whereas you guys did the same but it was within an estate well we're know? on the edge of this estate there was um acres i mean thousands of acres of military land common land oh, and wow. that was our playground so you mentioned quarries i mean quarries were you know we that were we would spend our summers at this, yeah. this huge best quarry. playgrounds ever like oh, absolutely I, like forget about swings and roundabouts like get yeah. me a load of rocks <laughs> and of course there's the, there was no mobile telephone so you would leave the house in the morning and that was all you, your parents wouldn't see you again till, till you were hungry yeah um, basically. yeah and it, that was just the life that it was and I think that 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 was a weird detachment that you ended up with where so when, you know, when my dad says something when I'm 16 it doesn't feel that he doesn't care it just feels like you know he hasn't particularly interfered in my life up until that point yeah so it was just in keeping really um so yeah I, I thought well yeah there's nobody pushing me that way um maybe with the right encouragement and again this comes back to to school I don't think I necessarily did myself any favors um yeah I was troublesome at times I think and I I didn't work hard enough if I'm absolutely honest I think that I had the the aptitude to, to go on but not the, the the appetite so it suited me I think to to, to leave school at 16. And I think as well, um, like it, it's really important as well for people to see people from their own background, their own kind of situation, do things. So what I mean by that is I had a previous guest on Christopher Hooley back in season one, which I actually just realized I recorded his interview a year ago. So I'm really getting close to the year anniversary <laughs> of this show. But um, he, he he mentioned how like <clears throat> he was the eldest of his family and there's a quite a big gap between him and the youngest. The youngest is in secondary school now and he is a secondary school teacher now so oh wow okay yeah and his youngest sibling is growing up with seeing her oldest brother as a teacher who has a degree obviously to teach yeah. and their mother is also in college at the minute getting a degree so like for her when she grows up even though she's growing up in a similar situation to you like in a council estate or whatever um like there's two people in her life that went to college you know so it's it's that kind of thing of if it yeah. happens within your family it's so that's the norm that's the norm exactly the, it's the new important. norm yeah yeah i think things have changed dramatically i think the classification of working class seems to have, have shifted mm. um back then you know working class was literally working class now it, it i think the definition has, has changed slightly um you know, I now hear people say, you know, I'm working class when they've been to university and they're working in the media, um, you know, and they're living in sort of relatively affluent areas. And you think, well, OK, there's I mean, I wouldn't necessarily class myself as working class anymore. Um, I don't think my children are working class. Um, I, th- I think it is you are working class when you are in that in that situation. Yeah. Um, when you're in that kind of career. Yeah. Or, and as, as yeah. you evolve. 
as a person. I, it doesn't mean that you don't, you, your roots are working class perhaps, but I think your mindset changes um, dramatically um, as you sort of you know, move through life. And tell me just before we move too far away from um, your background and your childhood and everything, uh, was uh, were either of your parents big readers or, or anything like that? Or did they encourage you to be? Because obviously you're an author now and a full-time author. So <laughs> there must have at some point in your life been somebody who pushed you towards books and reading and stuff. Or was that just, did that come later in life? Uh, no, I mean, I can honestly say my I don't remember my parents ever buying me a book. Uh, maybe the Guinness Book of Records, actually. No, I tell a lie. I think I got the Guinness Book of Records, which I don't I mean, Didn't we all? <laughs> like, if you grew up in the UK and Ireland, it, was, it wasn't yeah. Christmas unless you got the new Guinness Mandatory. Book. Um, so I think I got that. But my, I think my, my um, appetite for reading actually started with comics. So oh. um, I think my mum bought me a comic when I was, I don't know, five or six. And I, I loved them. And... Um, uh, she would get me one every week, which would be Wizard and Chips. I don't know if you had that over in Ireland. Um, and I would devour that every Sunday. And then I discovered um, that the local supermarket used to sell uh, glass bottles of pop. So, you know, limeade, cherryade, Coke. And if you bought the bottle back, you would get 10p. So it's like a deposit. Mm. And then I learned if I sort of scavenged around the estate, I could find these bottles. And by find, I mean not always legitimately yeah. find <laughs> them, yeah. um, then I would take them down to this this shop get get the 10p and um, then I could go and buy myself more comics so that was really where my sort of reading began um, but there was no uh, there, there were very few books I don't think my parents were, were avid readers um, it's kind of heartbreaking now but my mum went way my mum passed away 12 years ago I not know. 12 years ago in 2012 um so she never got to see any of this my dad uh to this day has not read anything that i've written and uh or listened to it um and that's that's yeah that's a that's a diff- difficult one um but uh i i take from that that he's probably not a keen reader so that that would explain why there were no books in the house when i was growing up yeah yeah it's funny because you know you you always hear um the, the one thing I hear a lot and I've said this in other episodes is that you know authors are generally people who read a lot as a kid and who were really into reading and their parents were into reading and writing and I'm always like well no <laughs> you know it, it yeah. happens and it, like turn turn the the other side of the coin or whatever you want to say like there are other people then who come to writing like either later in life or they come to writing because they're just that kind of person and then the reading kind of follows you know I think if, if I were able to write nonfiction, it, I would write a book called 101 Myths About Writing and Writers um, because there, there, is, there are so many. And, yeah. and I think in some way it, it's off-putting because you, you kind of come into this feeling that you're, you don't fit the, the mould. And I can kind of see why it, some people are worried, particularly people from you know, a non-educational background. If you don't have a degree... Um, you know, if you've not worked in the media, journalism, or any of the even teaching, you know, some people they they do feel that you know that writing is not for <laughs> to quote my dad uh, to yeah. quote for, it's not for people like them, um, and and I think that's the one of the things I, I've never been great on on listening to sort of standardised advice. Um, so I you know I completely I, in fact I ignored it. I didn't even do any research before I, I, I penned a book. And I think if I had, it might have put me off. Um, I think there is there are there there are there is a classist element within uh, the literary world uh, that exists. And um, despite recent uh, efforts to try and encourage more working class writers, I I don't know how it might be well intentioned, but um, I don't know how effective it is so uh, yeah yeah okay interesting um because that's uh, I, I ended up discussing a, quite a similar thing in a previous episode with um the person we were talking about earlier yes. uh, Dougie Brimson um so it is interesting but uh, not not to not to put a quash in that conversation more <laughs> sort of like see who wants to talk about yeah, let's not go down there yeah 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 so um so at any stage then when you were young was there anything about like being inventive or creative 
like obviously not reading and writing so much as others was there anything that like that you'd classify as creative that you were encouraged towards you think okay there, there were two things firstly I, I mean I already mentioned that I was a fairly solitary child um so I was quite happy uh going out on my own again you know six seven eight years of age going over to the the, the common land the common as we called it mm. um and I was quite happy to spend a whole day there sat in a tree sat by a lake and I had an incredibly vivid imagination so I would just daydream um there was there was a, I remember this tree that was probably about 30 feet it was on a bank about 30 feet uh from a sort of main path that cut through this common and in the summer you could climb up into this tree and nobody on the path could see you but you were close enough to hear and <laughs> it sounds a bit weird now I'm, I'm making myself like a really odd child but <laughs> I used to love sitting in that tree you said it not me I know <laughs> you said and it. just just as people would pass by and they didn't know I was there <laughs> um and this starts to sound like the beginning of a, a serial killer movie doesn't it he yeah. used to sit in this tree and watch people passing by um masturbating furiously <laughs> <laughs> i never did that <laughs> so i would sit in this tree and i would just listen and, and speak and it was just it almost felt like a superpower sort of invisibility yeah and i probably used to sort of daydream so yeah i had a very vivid imagination which is you know, fairly useful as, uh, as an author. Um, and then as I got a bit older, when, once my brothers went to work, there was a bit more money in the house. And uh, I was 12, I think, and I got uh, a computer for Christmas. And it was a, wasn't a great computer. It, was one, it wasn't a, uh, a Sinclair Spectrum or a Commodore 64 or any of the popular ones. It was some obscure thing called an Oric. And there was so little software available for this auric that the only way you could have anything was actually sort of self-taught my uh i taught myself how to 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 code um okay, and so come up with sort of game it. concepts yeah and and that's how i sort of overcome the lack of software for this this machine was actually come out with my own stuff and i think again going back to being an author there's a lot of emphasis on the creativity but uh, not so much on the analytical side you do need an analytical mind yeah, yeah um, no, you're totally right you know a story is essentially somebody having a problem and you've got to drag that person through that problem and out the other end and it's got to be resolved in a believable way and obviously creatively you know so having an analytical mind and being able to sort of code I think also helped coupled with the, the sort of vivid imagination so I suspect it sort of stems from there really mm-hmm. um or maybe I just wish that I'd sort of perhaps harness the, those two to get put those two together um, when I was younger. But by the time I got sort of 15, 16, I had other ideas of what I wanted to do anyway. So, you know, the sort of computers fell by the wayside. So so let's say just um, in, in another in another life, in a path not taken, mm. let's say you, you um, didn't listen to your dad and you, um, who said college wasn't for yeah. people like you uh, and you decide, no, I will. Do you think you would have gone to college or university with computer science and coding and stuff like that or what what do you think what kind of college degree would have called to you I think I would have probably done business studies I was quite entrepreneurial as a teenager um and I think I would have I would have liked to have done something along those I would have liked to have, you know run my have my own business um it it didn't it didn't pan out like that but I I don't know I never really reflected on you know I see a lot of people going to to universities and and going to college and uni and they would come out with degrees in all sorts of random things when I was 22 I actually got a job managing a bookshop of all things and um two of the people that were recruited it was a brand new bookshop that just opened so I was recruited as manager and I was given these two members of staff I hadn't had any say in it and they were both uh, uni graduates one had done politics and the other one had done um english i think it was and i remember thinking how does how does this work that these guys are more or less the same age as me they have gone to to university they've got degrees and now they are they're, they're my underlings um it, it just it sort of blew my mind really and it sort of validated wh- where I was I mean I don't know what they're doing now they've probably got incredibly well-paid jobs and uh, are hugely <laughs> successful but for that brief period it sort of validated my, my decision yeah yeah yeah. I, th- I think that's the thing it's, it's 
there is this weird moment in in like a, a young when you're in your kind of early 20s where you're either just out of college or you've been working a couple of years and either way everyone's still kind of level pegging whether you yeah no matter what, and I think that's true even to, especially today because I mean how many places require a degree and it doesn't even need to be something it doesn't like there's so many jobs out there now yeah that just says you need a degree it doesn't even have to be if you're if you're going to work in a business setting it doesn't have to be a business degree you know it just needs to be a degree and then it's like well what's the point then if it's just a degree then why are you I, I, that absolutely boils my piss because it, yeah. it, it actually acts as like a social barrier uh, filter it's almost like saying well if you didn't go to university then you're not the type of person that we want to employ you know you could have been doing any manner of things for the last five six years you could have been hugely successful in any given field but then none of that is relevant uh, because you haven't been through this sort of social filter that we see university as and I think that the other problem with that is it creates work environments where you have groupthink you know you don't get different opinions you don't get different views and I think uh, the, the trouble with that is that as a business you need those different opinions those different worldviews um, so I think it's a you know it's a deeply flawed um, way of recruiting people for sure yeah. no I definitely agree and then like to to make it more succinct and more about me even though you're the guest um, <laughs> like for example uh, the, so my teaching my degree is in teaching like it, okay it's a really specific degree and um it's the only one you're allowed to teach primary school with in ireland and um but when i did it it was it only took me three years it's, it was a three-year course but then when i left college it became a four-year course so now internationally i can't teach full-time in the vast majority of countries because most other countries other than ireland is a four-year degree even though i actually did more hours in college like our, our college was nine to six. Most How long have you been teaching? And that's the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> this September coming will be my 10th September teaching. And I'm an assistant principal in the school I'm in. So it's kind of like all that experience kaput. So let's say that my, let's say myself and my boyfriend moved to Australia yeah. right, for September. And someone who just is in college right now and just qualified also goes to September. Someone just out of college will get a permanent job over me. And the only thing I can work as is a substitute teacher. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, and they're going, really? I have all this experience over here, and this person just has a four-year degree. Uh, so it's just it's no it's practical so, experience. Yeah, practical experience doesn't really count for a lot of things. Yeah, it's um, uh, yeah, they will reap what they sow down the line. I suspect. Um, yeah. But- you know you god i'm gonna sound like a real old man now but there, there genuinely is very little um there, there's nothing better than actual experience in in any field oh um, yeah no completely yeah. you know academic qualifications i can't say that i've ever actually felt that not having any formal sort of academic qualifications has, has necessarily held me back if it has it's probably been my own fault because i've felt you know um there were times when I was younger, maybe there's a level of insecurity behind that, mm. um, that you feel that you're not as, as perhaps as good as someone who went to uni, college, whatever. Um, but now, no, um, it makes, makes no odds to me, really. Yeah. And, um, and in fairness, I think in your shoes, I would be, I'd be perpetually angry, even angrier than I am now. <laughs> That's saying something. <laughs> um. So before we start talking about your your writing fully and everything, you obviously had a a career and years of working before you started writing. Um, so without going too much in depth into what, what you did and everything, is there any particular skills or anything that you learned or any knowledge you gained from your other careers that you brought into your writing that you think gave you a bit of an edge or a bit of a head start in terms of writing? Yeah, I mean, I was... Uh, 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 a highly skilled bullshitter uh, <laughs> in my career. Um, I worked in, uh, I don't know, I'm sure I've met, I must have put this out there, um, but I was an estate agent for oh, okay. 15, 15 years. Um, and you made up things on the day. Oh, <laughs> every day, yeah. Um, and you, you learn to lie creatively, I can assure you. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, certainly that, it helps you, you know, I, 
estate agents, I mean, people talk about it and estate agents get a hard time. Um, I mean, I worked in a very wide uh, breadth of, of different, for a completely wide, put my teeth back in here. I work for a, a very um, broad spectrum of companies. So I did the sort of high street estate agency. I worked in land and new homes. I worked for a company in Southwest London that did all the sort of prestige homes, the sort of million, uh, bear in mind, this was the 90s. So we're talking million pound houses, the sort of footballer mansion types. Um, so I got to meet an awful lot of people and very different people. So you get to see um, the full spectrum of society. And um, yeah, it was a it was it was a good grounding. Um, and again, you know, the, the, I, I mean, we joke about the ability to bullshit, but uh, it, I think you need to. have Yeah, it. You, to, to think going back to what I was saying earlier, the ability to sort of think creatively and to solve problems using stories is is that that was part and parcel of what I did almost every day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're selling a house at the, and you have to find out, you know, some of the houses that certainly in my early career, some of that, you, know, you walk into a two bedroom interior shithole and then you've got to sell that. You, you've got to be fairly creative. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, certainly there were skills there. And when I, I eventually ended up running my own business, had a couple of offices, um, realized that was a, a quick route to a nervous breakdown. So I sold that. And then I ended up retraining as, as a web designer. And uh, that explains doing, the good website then. <laughs> yeah, well, you would hope so. Um, and I sort of fell into marketing and started learning an awful. And that was probably where I went through my biggest uh, reading glut, where I, I absolutely read everything and anything relating to marketing. So um, I then started working for myself and, and the marketing side of it. I mean, websites become a sort of, you know, if you're going to help a business um, secure more customers, they need a better website. So I could teach them all the marketing stuff that, and give them all the marketing ideas. But they, most of it fell back to a website, which is the reason why I started doing the web design. Um, but I didn't realize down the line how that sort of marketing would sort of subconsciously uh, feed into the books that I would go on to write. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the books you're going to write, uh, let's start talking because I think you've, I, I, I'm really looking forward to this story. I hope it's good. If it's not, you know, oh, well, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. on you, not me. <laughs> but um, you said, so you, you said in the, when you first got in touch about coming onto the show, you said that, you started writing on a dare and you even had the date. It was like the 18th of December, 20, I want to say 15. 2015. So um, I've been talking about writing a book and I don't know where it came from or why I thought I I was, I could write a book. I just thought, yeah, I I could write a book. And I've been talking about my friends, you know, boozy lunches and the like for, for a number of years. And I think they got bored of me talking about it. And then we were out having drinks one Christmas, 2015, and New Year's resolutions came up and I said, yeah, I'm going to write that book. And I think a bet was made. And yeah, 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 yeah of course you are. Yeah. And um, and that was that. We got drunk. And I don't think it really sort of dawned on me until the next year. And then um, a friend said, oh, how's the book coming along? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, what book? Um, <laughs> what? And, but it's funny how the you know the stars align. But in March, I had a project booked, which would have sort of eaten a, a big chunk of my month. And right at the last minute, and I, I think I'm fairly sure it's the company, the company went into had financial difficulties, and this whole thing got shelved. So I was left with this big chunk of time in my diary, and thought, right, I'm going to write this book. So um, yeah, it, it, essentially, it was more to to not lose face. <laughs> Than, than anything else I mean yeah it was a tick on a bucket list for sure um yeah. something I wanted to do but yeah it, there was a lot of face saving going on there as well um and and I just thought well okay how do you write a book well I suppose you just write words and that, that was that was it no plan I mean it was completely pants I, I didn't plot any of it at all I just sat there and thought okay what do I know about well I know about the 80s I love the 80s uh, I like time travel. Let's do a time travel book set in the in the eighties, and that was that was it. That was it. You just picked two things you knew and yeah. enjoyed, and just started typing. Yeah, I think there was there was 
<laughs> this is going to sound strange. There was a thing I wanted to put in, which I thought was funny, and it just sounds childish now, I'm going to say it, but I thought some reflection of fingering, which was a big thing to most teenage kids, I thought I've got to get that in there somewhere um, because it's something that you just don't. And I had this line in my head that I thought that would be a really funny way to describe it. So this, <laughs> that was it. I had, I've got to shoehorn that thing in there because I think it's really funny. And I think, you know, my mates thought it was funny. So that, that was it. I thought oh, I've got to basically construct this entire novel. I was going to say, um, you wrote the whole novel around that one line. Yeah, <laughs> I, thought I pretty much did. <laughs> Um, to this day, I, I possibly it's the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> I would like it, and it, it, I don't know if my wife will ever get around to, to watching this, but I would like it etched on my tombstone. Okay. That that line, right? Grand. I'll, I'll email her this one yeah. clip if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to be buried because I can't imagine many cemeteries would be willing to have a reference to fingering. Or, or, no, or, no, 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 no. But, but hey. cemeteries can be really weird though about the things they do and don't allow on um <laughs> on gravestones and yeah. I, I mentioned this because there was a a court case in uh i can't remember was it in scotland or northern ireland but one of the two and a woman who was born in the republic of ireland wanted a, a bible phrase carved on her tombstone but she wanted it in irish okay. and the cemetery wouldn't let her because you're not allowed political statements on the tombstone and the family had to argue well no because it, it's 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 not a political thing it's it's a bible verse just it translated but they were saying no no no. the actual language of irish is a political statement on its own and there is this big, gaelic yeah 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 it's it, gaelic gaelic is it's funny gaelic is a actually a, not the name of the language gaelic is the name of a family of languages um so and so there's scots gaelic and then okay irish the irish language is it's just called irish normally but it's gaelga with a g at the end instead of a nick okay so yes, so she wanted to put a bit of Gaelga on her tombstone, and the cemetery wouldn't let her because it was, it was a political statement, which I thought. Wow! Was so yeah, best of luck getting the fingering reference on, yeah. <laughs> on yours. <laughs> I imagine if anyone's listening to this from America, I don't, is it a thing in America? I I don't know if it if it is, guys. Um, Google it. I encourage. No, <laughs> <So, laughs> a different uh, a different path. <laughs> this um, podcast is going to really set people down. Look, yes. if you are going to do that, make sure you you're on an incognito tab. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, so you you said that the uh, the eighty six fix, which was your first book, yeah, uh, what involved time travel and the eighties. But can you tell us a little bit about the actual? story before we go on okay so essentially it was this sort of <laughs> this middle-aged guy who was pretty unhappy with his lot in life um living in a loveless marriage um the house everything about his life it was just below what he had expected when he was uh, a teenager so um he was the manager of an electric store that sold appliances that's something i don't know if you have that sort of carries dixons these yeah yeah, these sorts of places. Um, and uh, I'm trying to, this is sound, this sound weird because it's, I'm, I haven't read it uh, or since I wrote it because by the time you finished editing it, but you're so sick of it, you never oh, want to yeah. see it again. So I can't, actually, I'm struggling to remember the plot now. Um, <laughs> but essentially, via the medium of a Commodore 64 computer, um, Craig, who's the uh, protagonist, gets the, sorry, I need to rewind. Craig can pinpoint his, where the exact moment where his life spun off in the wrong direction. And okay. he basically has, has pinned his entire miserable existence on this one event that happened. So um, he then gets the opportunity to go back to 1986 as a 16 year old. So he's living within his 16 year old body and change this this one decision that he made and so the, the basically the book goes on then to sort of he, he you can imagine waking up in your 16 year old body um and and you know he has family members that you know are long since dead and and of course the experiences so there's a lot of nostalgia in there i've sort of shoehorned as many 80s references as i could into it um and and Basically, it's the tale of what happens if you wish for something different and what the consequences may well be. Okay, yeah. So, so it sounds um, it sounds like it'd be it, it doesn't sound the same, but it sounds like it'd be kind of the same kind of 
lesson learned type thing as um uh, what a wonderful life and uh that yeah. Sander click movie which I hate very much Sander, but that's Although, actually movie. <laughs> I, I would say um because I didn't bother doing any research um and I, I think this is one of the things we we're going back to what we were saying earlier about uh the 101 things uh about writing yeah. that <clears throat> you you should ignore um I because I didn't follow the sort of prescribed methods yeah I had no idea what I was doing the book did, does not follow the sort of traditional three-act part. There's a load of backstory. I mean, basically, I broke every rule because they didn't know those rules existed. Yeah, yeah. And I think that actually made the book much, much better because it was completely unpredictable because I didn't have a clue what was going to happen. And if I didn't know what was going to happen, then the reader clearly didn't know what was happening. In fact, even a, I had a vague idea of the ending and I changed it right the sort of last three or four chapters um and turned it into a bit of a cliffhanger which pissed a lot of people off um <laughs> because of course it was going to be the only book I ever penned so yeah. you can imagine I leave this, this one book on a bit of a cliffhanger and go well that's your lot um I'm not writing anymore because uh, I'm not a writer yeah. um and that and that was that so um yeah it was um I, I suspect if I hadn't just been so cavalier about it all, if I'd have studied the craft and done what everyone suggests you do, I'd have ended up with a, a sort of cookie cutter time travel novel that was sort of aimed at a very broad audience that really didn't resonate with anyone. And it would never have got any traction and we would not be having this conversation now. So to, to, to build on that then, I mean, if you didn't, you didn't, like your writing process was you created your own writing process. Like you did it your way and you did yeah. research. So if you compare, I mean, you're, you're, you're currently editing your 12th novel. Yeah. So surely you've done some bit of research since and, and learned, or even if you didn't do research, surely you've changed your writing process since. So like, could you tell me how, how your kind of your day-to-day was when you're writing book one compared to, the day-to-day of writing book 12 how have things changed okay the actual day-to-day writing is no different um I think my writing has clearly got better um you don't write you know over a million words without you know getting better at doing it yeah one would hope (laughs) yeah yeah exactly but I don't think my my you know the from the my day is any different I still have the same word count the word target every day um I still write virtually every day um, so nothing has changed in that respect. What has changed, though, is the editing process, because mm-hmm. it wasn't one with the 86 fix. Um, that's not strictly true. What happened is I finished it in Word and then I run the spell check. And that was that was it. Edited. Done. That was it. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> you, didn't, yeah. you didn't even like read through it and be like, oh, that doesn't make sense or. I kind of did a couple of times and then I got, I, you know, as I've said, I'm I've a very low boredom threshold. So I did that and then spell check. Yeah. Spell check works, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's pretty effective. Um, perhaps on a, you know, on a 400 word, you know, description of a property. Yeah. yeah great. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred thousand word book. Not so good. So um, I, I did that and I just, uploaded it to Amazon. Actually, I, I think I tried to get a, a deal. I think I, I approached a few, um agents but uh, yeah again i didn't bother doing any research i just sent them this thing saying i've got this book uh i think it's quite good uh do you want to publish it uh do you want to find me a publisher you say that to the agents <laughs> yeah seriously <laughs> i didn't publish it. <laughs> and, and i don't think um i think i think i heard back from one who said yeah no thanks um but that that was it uh, so unsurprisingly uh, I, I ended up self-publishing and um it was only when I think a few comments come back from uh, on social media saying, love the book, but you know, you probably do with an editor. So I sort of hired one belatedly. And then I realized how awful it was. Mm-hmm. As, as well, I don't think until, like you said, until you've written something that's longer than a 400 word property description or, or, a, or a 1000 word essay for yeah. college or something or school or whatever. It isn't until you've written something that is of fair length that you realize you need another set of eyes on it. You need oh, an absolutely. editor. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the process now that I've sort of evolved over the last 12 books is, is just, 
I'm, I'm paranoid about it. And again, I guess this probably comes to my hang up about, you know, I don't want to be judged. Um, mm. I think within it, within indie authors in particular, you are held to a, a higher standard. You yeah, know, definitely. You notice in reviews that, that I mean, I've read you know, tons of, of um, traditionally published books that have had grammatical errors and typos. Yeah, you don't see that in the reviews, but as soon as you see one in a, in a book that's written by an, an indie author, it's, oh, yeah, it's full of mistakes. And by full of, they mean they've found three yeah. uh, in 100,000 words. I think we are, you know, we, we get a rough ride um, when it comes to people being critical. So I'm paranoid about it. But the, the system I have now is just so rigorous. Um, you know, I, I, what I do myself before it even goes to an editor, beta readers, I mean, it's... it's I think probably 15 to 20 sets of eyes see every book before it, it mm. goes anywhere near Amazon these days. Yeah. It takes almost as long now to edit the editing process as the writing process. Well, I think you said, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier about that idea of um, there being a little bit of classism within the literary world. I think, yeah. I think there's that within the reading world as well. I mean, you see, the thing with indie books is, a lot of people, a lot of readers will falsely say they can spot an indie book a mile away because yeah. of the amateur cover and the poor and the typos and the grammar and the editing is bad or whatever, which can be the case. But I mean, I have a stack, like you see that bar stack of books behind yeah. me. That's uh, um, one is my red pile and the other one is to, my to be red pile. Thankfully, the red pile is the higher pile. <laughs> <laughs> but there are books there that like, you wouldn't know which one was traditionally published and which one was indie. And I'd say it's around 50-50. But, so, you know, it's that kind of thing of, is this sense of, I don't want to say snobbery, but you know what I mean? It's this sense of people look down their nose a little bit at indie authors sometimes thinking, yeah, you, you did it yourself. You, you know? couldn't get a publishing deal. I mean, that's, yeah. that's essentially what people want to say, but they don't say it. And I mean, I've turned down multiple deals. Um primarily for financial reasons. Hmm. Um, so in my case, it, it's a choice. I, I write because I love the freedom. I like being able to publish when I want to publish. Um, the idea of only putting out one book a year, I just think, wow, you know, I've got X amount of, you know, God willing, X amount of years left on this planet. Why would I limit myself to just one book a year or every 18 months or whatever a publisher deems is, is acceptable? Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's... Um, I, I, I am quite content yeah, being an indie publisher. And I think, as you've already said, the tools that we have at our disposal now mean that we can produce books that are every bit as polished as anything that comes out of a publishing house. Exactly, exactly. Um, so at what point, I'd love to, because like, you're a full-time indie author and you, you only started, like what, four or five years ago? Yeah. Um, like th that's, that's really fast to go from first book to full-time writing. So what was that like when you made that transition from part-time to full-time? Well, I was very fortunate that it wasn't a, it wasn't a sort of a just switch from night to day mm. um, because I was self-employed. Uh, I sat at the same desk, used the same computer, and then I would just slowly increase the amount of writing I was doing each day as opposed to the, to the sort of regular day job I had. And then around sort of summer 2018, I think it was, no, 2019, I, I sort of, it was a tipping point and I was starting to earn more money from books than I was from the, the day job. Mm. So I sort of thought, well, uh, if I can make that much money only giving this half my time, what could I do if I'm doing it yeah. all of the time? And then what I discovered is that actually down the line, it made no difference because <clears throat> I think there's a finite amount of time you can write uh, each day uh, or, or write well. And for me, that's sort of five, six hours, anything more than that. Yeah, I'm just churning out, crap so um as it transpired I, I i have more time to do all the other stuff that you have to do as an indie author is answering emails social media all the other stuff that you would do. But, <laughs> yeah exactly but you know that's no different from somebody who's traditionally published you know you, it's not uh it's not a free ticket you don't suddenly just get a publishing deal and go great i'm now going to be a celebrity author you still got to put in the hard yards and i think that's something that a lot of budding authors don't necessarily understand is that you you don't get the access to this sort of vast marketing machine just mm. because you get a traditional publishing deal you, the expectation is still on you to do your own marketing mm. so my view is well if you're doing your own marketing um why would you want to give away half of your royalties it just it, it's it's a 
makes no sense to me. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, if you're if the, really the amount of the amount of work that a traditional publishing house um, will do, I think the only real difference is just that traditional publishing houses just have a quicker access to the major books bookshops, like the the sure. brick and mortar ones. Yeah, and I think that really is it. Like they'll just have a bit more money behind marketing. Like, but you're still going to have to do a lot of work yourself as the author. But it's the, it's the bookstores, which I think are always the thing. I guess if you asked any indie author, even the ones that you know, are hugely successful, way more successful than I am, they will probably say the same thing, that the one thing they wish they could have would be that access to those, those bookstores. Because I, I can imagine what it's like, you know, you walk past Waterstones, whatever it may be, and then you see your book in the window. I mean, that would be every author's yeah. dream. Yeah, you, know, you have arrived. And obviously knowing that that's not likely to happen, um, that does, you know, that, that's the one thing I suspect, which is, is, is why, going back to my current wit, that I thought, I, I want to see my book in a bookstore. But then um, that was back in January and things change. And um, yeah, now I'm, I don't, don't care quite so much. <laughs> I think in January the world was a very different place, and um, my yeah. mindset certainly was in a in a very different place. So I think now I just feel slightly more optimistic about life. Well, even like you said a few minutes ago, um, that you started like thinking about full time writing in the summer of twenty nineteen, and in my head I was like, "Oh, that was pre COVID." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's just taken over all our lives so much. Yeah. Um, Keith, we're, we're pretty pretty much out of time, but I want to okay. ask you my last few questions because I ask the same guest every question. Yes. And uh, also, you're my 32nd interviewer, uh, interviewee. So I um, be my new favorite number, 32. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my first thing is, what when we've stopped recording and uh, sorted stuff out and said our goodbyes, what's the first thing you're going to do? Uh, editing. <laughs> editing. Oh, it's yeah. Um, I promised my editor that I would have a vaguely clean manuscript to her by next week so that's my weekend sorted out yeah i was gonna say there's not much free time for you this weekend then no um and then do you have any goals that you want to achieve outside of writing completely just any kind of bizarre little thing you'd like to share do you know what if you'd have asked me that question 18 months ago i'd have absolutely reeled off a list of things but i've now sort of come to the conclusion that plans long-term plans are yeah what, what what is the point so it sounds really cheesy and cliche but i think I'm now more likely to just sort of live in live in the moment um, and just, you know, uh, just enjoy, actually just enjoy what I'm doing um, and what's going on around me. No harm in that either. Um, so then what about uh, what's your next kind of big goal as an author then? Oh, um, I, I guess uh, I would love to see one. Of my, I mean, I get this like a lot of authors, all your books would make great movie, TV show, yeah. whatever it is. I get that so many times um, every day. And there's not a great deal that I can do about it, um, unfortunately. But yeah, clearly I would love to see, you know, one of my characters on, on the big or even the small screen. Um, so yeah, that that would be, I think, a, a, a huge thing for me. Awesome. Um, and then just just two more questions and we're done. Yep. And the first one is where can people find you and all your books and everything online? OK, so you can go to my website, which is keithapearson.co.uk. <laughs> I laugh because I went to keithpearson.co.uk earlier and was very confused. <laughs> is it still the banjo player? It is still the banjo player. Yeah. <laughs> so people ask why I have that A in my name. And it's not I'm, it's not, I'm not being pretentious. Uh, I couldn't get a domain name, Keith Pearson. Um, I don't even like the name Keith. I hate it. So I, I, I was tempted. Going back, I would have changed. I would have called myself Kiefer or something like that, mm. just so I sounded cool. But um, no, I'm stuck with it. And my namesake is a bluegrass banjo player. Yeah, um, which he's pretty good. I, I I'm sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, his books are awful, as is my banjo playing. So yeah, we need, we need the A. Um, I've completely the forgotten the question is. now. What was the question? Uh, where can people find your books? And then oh, I yeah, that's so bad at this. So, not on Keith Pearson's website, but keithapearson.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and I'm not on Instagram, nor will I ever be. That's fair. And then my final question, and then we'll say goodbyes and good luck, is what was the last book you read? 
Oh, okay. So I, I mentioned I moved home recently, so I've not read much for the last eight months. Um, I'm struggling now. I think it was probably where the crawdads sing. Um, oh, yeah, I know. And I only read that because I like to understand what what makes a book hugely popular or from a commercial perspective. So I sort of I wouldn't say force myself, but I really do jump from genre to um, different authors just to get a grip. And I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Uh, after about the first five, six chapters, I thought, oh, this is awful. Can't stand it. It's not my thing. But no, I really enjoyed it in the end. Brilliant. Um, Keith, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been great to get to know you and to hear your story. And uh, thanks for coming on. No, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks again to Keith for being on the show. It was great to get to know him. If you're interested in Keith and his books, you can find links to his growing collection as well as his Twitter um, account in the show notes. Thanks for listening. As always, head over to Instagram so you can support the show um, by interacting and talking. Um, you can get guest previews um, on every Sunday and one, and Saturday and Sunday. I always show a preview of who the guest is for the Monday episode. Um, inside scoops and how the episodes are made. Book recommendations. I mean, that's what everyone needs, right? More books to read because we have so much free time. <laughs> uh, that's all for this week. Chat to you all later. Thanks for listening today. I hope you loved listening to this episode just as much as I loved recording it. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or over on Podchaser. Until then, be good, be brave, and tell stories. See ya.